following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the son of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit on your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answer. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit on my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of Gentiles lord it over them, and their high official exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be, become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slaves of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A few years ago, Cleveland Indians outfielder Brandon Moss hit his 100th career home run. Usually when this happens, the player or team will offer the fan who caught it some memorabilia, say a signed jersey or bat in exchange for the ball. But Moss's 100th homer didn't land in the stands. It sailed directly into the Indians' own bullpen. And no, his teammates didn't miss a chance to have a little fun. After the game, instead of handing Moss his ball, they handed him a ransom note. Each pitcher on the team had scribbled his name, and next to it, an Apple device. And at the bottom, it simply said, you get the ball when we get these items. As this prank started to make national news and a wonderful plot twist, Apple CEO Tim Cook got involved and said he would pick up the tab. So the jokesters in the bullpen got their iPads and Apple Watches, and Moss got his home run ball. It's a funny, lighthearted example of paying a ransom, which, of course, is rarely a funny or lighthearted topic. I mean, usually when we think of ransoms, we think of abductions, high stakes situations that are terrifying. But whatever the situation, whether it's a silly example, like the home run ball, or a serious one, 
Nothing in history, no ransom payment in history compares to the one we're going to be thinking about together this morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. The gospel according to Mark is the oldest of the four gospels dating back to the middle of the first century. In the first half of the book, the focus is on who Jesus is. In the second, the camera lens starts to turn and look at what he's come to do. And we're in that second half now in a section where Jesus is revealing what it means to live in his kingdom and to follow him as king. One commentator calls it, quote, the most sustained and specific teaching on discipleship in the New Testament. Here's what I think is the main idea of this passage, Mark 10, 32 to 45, the main idea of the passage and therefore the main idea of this message. Jesus' substitutionary love provides the pattern and the power for putting others before ourselves. Jesus' substitutionary love, his substitutionary love provides the pattern and the power for putting others before ourselves. We'll think about that in three points as we make our way through this passage. First, the resolve. We'll see that in verses 32 to 34. Then the request. That's verses 35 to 40. And finally, the ransom. Verses 41 to 45. The resolve, the request, and the ransom. First of all, the resolve. Verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. It's not immediately obvious why the 12 disciples are so astonished, but but I think it's likely because they realize it's finally dawning on them. He's really serious about this going to Jerusalem thing. He keeps talking about needing to go south to Jerusalem to die, and he really looks like he's going to do it. And sure enough, middle of verse 32, again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. This is the third and final prediction of his destiny and his resolve to get there. Each prediction that we've seen, chapter 8, chapter 9, and here in chapter 10, has gotten a bit more specific with this one being the most detailed yet. And notice, Jesus doesn't just say, I am going to Jerusalem. He says, we are. As, as one commentator put it, the disciples face a moment of truth when they realize their fate is enmeshed with Jesus' fate. The bell tolls not only for Jesus, but for them too. And the same is true for us. Notice in verse 32, it, it says Jesus was leading the way. This is not a helpless victim staggering behind. He's leading the way, which means 
we should examine our hearts and, and honestly ask ourselves, are we willing to follow wherever He takes us? I mean, it's one thing to follow Him around a peaceful Galilean lake. It's another thing to be on the road to Jerusalem under the shadow of the cross. But we should take heart that the reason Jesus is doing this, the whole reason He's walking with such resolve is for us. There is purpose and love in every step. How do the disciples respond to this startling and sobering prediction? Number two, the request. Verse 35, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. This sounds like one of your kids. Don't elbow them. And it's certainly uh, tone deaf. I mean, it, it is ridiculous. We, we, we know that. We kind of roll our eyes at it. And it's certainly tone deaf in light of what Jesus has just said, what he's just predicted. He's just talked about a brutal, agonizing death. And they're like, do us a favor, Jesus. Write us one blank check. And amazingly, what may even be more amazing than the request itself is his response. He doesn't rebuff them. He, he doesn't say, how dare you ask me that? You want to try again? No, he is more patient and tender than they deserve, than we deserve. Verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? He asked. So here it is. Things are actually going according to their plan. Here it is. He said, what do you want me to do for you? This is the green light they wanted. What are they going to request? I mean, maybe peace to endure the coming pain, maybe help overcoming their unbelief. Verse 37, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Little known fact, this is how Sebastian and Josh became elders. <laughs> Just kidding. Seriously, no sooner has Jesus finished predicting his brutal death than James and John start demanding status in his kingdom. I mean, it, it's laughable. We're meant to cringe. But we should understand the reason for the request. They're still expecting, or at least hoping, that once they get to Jerusalem, that Jesus is going to finally do what they've been wanting, what they've been scrambling for, what they've been hoping for, that he's finally going to go public as the political Messiah they want. I mean, sure, they've heard him predict his death, but he also just said something about rising, which... Perhaps they take as some kind of parable or metaphor for conquering the Romans. Perhaps they're thinking of the Psalms of Ascent in the Old Testament, the Psalms of Ascent, and assuming that the road to Jerusalem is a procession of grandeur. They're still missing, though. They're still missing the big E on the eye chart. And that's that the way to glory is through suffering. They're all about the destination. 
They love the destination. They're, they're, they're quick to stake their claim for top positions in Jesus' cabinet. But they're not so excited, not so open to the route. When it comes to their request, again, it's easy to kind of roll our eyes. Oh, there, there go the disciples being the disciples again. But are we really so different? I mean, how often do we walk up to Jesus and instead of asking him what we should, instead of asking him to help us see, instead we ask him to help us to be seen. Of course, we don't phrase it like that. We're good church people. Perhaps we wouldn't even consciously think of it like that. But if we're honest, that's precisely what we want. We want comfort. We, we want some status, just a little bit of recognition, just a little bit of success. And don't get me wrong, we're, we're happy, more than happy to read missionary biographies and recommend them to others. We're, we're more than happy to be thankful for those who make grand sacrifices for Jesus. And we're happy for him to get honor from our lives as well, to get honor from us so long as he leaves a little bit of honor for us. Oh, River City, let's beware of this danger. Let's beware of becoming triumphalist Christians who, who want honor without obscurity, glory without difficulty, the crown without the cross. Jesus responds, verse 38, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? In other words, are you really prepared to identify with me in suffering? Because it sure seems like all you're interested in is glory. The implied answer to his question is no. You're not ready, James and John. You're not prepared. You can't do it. And yet their answer in verse 39 is a triumphant. We can. In other words, whatever you mean, Jesus, we, we don't totally get what you're talking about, but whatever you mean by this cup and baptism thing, we're all over it. <laughs> whatever kingdom you're bringing, we'll be the first to grab our swords. Trust us. We got you, Jesus. Jesus said to them, and I imagine with some sadness in his voice, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. This has nothing to do with grape juice or heated baptismal pools. The cup and the baptism here are images with Old Testament backdrops. That, that have to do with draining the wrath of God or being plunged under the floodwaters of his judgment. And Jesus is saying, that is precisely where I'm headed. And because you're associated with me, you too will be persecuted. And sure enough, here's a little Bible trivia, James will go on to become, in Acts chapter 12, the first of the apostles to be martyred for his faith. Jesus then adds an asterisk in verse 40 
but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. Don't let this throw you. This is not proving that God the Son has less authority than God the Father. It's actually not referring to Jesus' divine status at all. See, Scripture speaks of Jesus in two registers, sometimes in accordance with his divine nature and other times in accordance with his human nature. When Jesus says it's not his prerogative to assign seats in the new heavens and new earth, he's not saying he lacks that right as God. He's simply saying the job is irrelevant to his earthly mission as the perfectly obedient human son. That choice has been settled for all eternity, he's saying. And besides, you don't know what you're asking for anyway. The resolve, the request, point number three, the ransom. Verse 41, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. It's possible they're, they're like, you self-absorbed guys, how dare you ask a question like that? I think it's more likely they're mad because, I mean, this is kind of an ancient case of FOMO, fear of missing out. They're mad because James and John beat them to it. They outmaneuvered them, and so they have missed their chance to claim impressive seats, impressive places in the kingdom to come. That word indignant, by the way, is the same word we saw earlier in the chapter, back in verse 14, except there, if you remember, it was Jesus who was indignant with them for turning away little children. Do you feel the contrast? You want to make Jesus indignant? Spurn those of low status. You want to make the disciples indignant? Threaten their own status. Verse 42, Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentile lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. This would have been this, this example would have been viscerally felt by the disciples because they were living day after day after day under grinding oppression in the Roman Empire. And even though we live in a very different era and under a different political system, we all know intuitively what Jesus is talking about. We, we've all seen and many of us have experienced heavy-handed self-serving authority. Whether a teacher or a boss or a husband or a pastor, it is a terrible and sometimes even dangerous thing. As we thought about a couple weeks ago when I talked about bully husbands in the, in the sermon on divorce, it is a dangerous thing to be domineered to report to someone, to be serving someone who has no interest in serving you. I mean, perhaps they're happy for you to be around, they're happy to use you, they're happy to benefit from you, but not serve you. You exist for them, and that's clear to both of you. But Jesus Christ is always subverting the way of the world. 
which is why in the very next breath he says, verse 43, not so with you. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Notice he doesn't dismiss authority as illegitimate, all authority as illegitimate. He doesn't say, well, the world is really ruining it out there. They're exercising authority badly, so we're going to do away with it here in the kingdom. No. He says, we're not going to get rid of authority. We're going to redeem it. We're going to restore it to its original and beautiful intent. We're going to lead. There will be leaders in the kingdom, in the church. We're going to lead strongly, but in a way that is like sunshine to those under our care that makes them bloom rather than wilt. One of the most insightful voices, I think, on the topic of authority is Andy Crouch. and In his little book, Strong and Weak, he observes Leadership doesn't begin with title or position. It begins the moment you're more concerned about others flourishing than your own. I mean, just just think about it. The way that the world measures greatness, the way the world measures greatness is by the standard of service a person receives not by what they give. Greatness is the number of people who are serving you, not the number of people you're serving. But Jesus Christ crashes in and he reverses our self-regarding logic. And he's always coming in to do a demo job. He's not interested in just some minor, subtle tweaks to the well-entrenched system. No, he turns the whole thing upside down, making the first last and the last first. I mean, think about what you, in your heart of hearts, want to be known for. I don't mean famous for. I don't mean what... I'm not talking public fame or legacy, but when people think of you, when you come to mind, what do you want them to think? What do you immediately want them to think when they see your name or your face? Oh, she's so good at this. He, he's amazing at that. But ask yourself, is there a way of serving or a kind of service that you would do more of if you just knew you would be seen or that you would do less of if you knew for sure no one would notice? The way of the world is always going to be about advancing self and managing optics and controlling those under us, even under the guise, yes, of religion. But 2,000 years ago, Jesus subverted the system by showing a more excellent way. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
here we've arrived at the key that not only unlocks this passage, but unlocks the whole gospel according to Mark up to this point. Everything has been building to this moment. How do I know? Because we're 10 chapters in, and this is the first time Jesus has told us why he's going to die. Not that he's going to die, but why. And he couldn't be clearer. He is not, not going to Jerusalem as a mere martyr or example. He's going there to die as a substitute in the place of sinners for the many to use the language of verse 45. This is is a pregnant verse. There's a lot going on here, more than we may realize. I mean, first of all, why does Jesus refer to himself here and elsewhere as the Son of Man? The Son of Man. It's not just a casual phrase. It's actually a title, an official title that comes from Daniel chapter 7. I want you to turn there briefly. You can keep your finger in Mark chapter 10, but turn back to Daniel 7. No worries whatsoever if you have to consult the table of contents. But here's what we read in this prophecy from Daniel in chapter 7. Look at verses 13 and 14. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. There it is. One like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. For centuries, Israel had been anticipating this figure, this triumphant, reigning, kingly, even eternal Son of man. But he wasn't the only person they were anticipating. Turn now to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. This is before the book of Daniel. Isaiah. We already read this as our scripture reading earlier in the service. You can also find it there. I'll just reread starting in verse 10. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 10. That's at the top of page 8 in your service guide. The prophet Isaiah, he's writing around 700 B.C., and he's forecasting a servant of the Lord who will come and who will suffer in his people's place. Isaiah 53, 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. 
Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide his spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin, what's that word again? Of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, put these two towering promises together. Daniel 7, Isaiah 53. They don't appear to fit, do they? One is about a reigning king, the other a suffering servant. One is about a son of man who will be worshipped and his kingdom never destroyed. The other is about a servant who's going to be slaughtered. Two different figures, two different fates. Two different fates until we reach centuries later, Mark 10, 45, which tells us that the royal son of man, Daniel 7, is going to suffer Isaiah 53 and give his life as what? A ransom for many. This is what the disciples were not expecting, that the faces of the two figures would merge into one, that the long-awaited Messiah of Israel would come and would establish his glorious kingdom, not by reigning, but by ransoming. Or to put it more specifically, he would reign by ransoming. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom is a payment that liberates. A payment that liberates. You you don't ransom someone. You don't pay a ransom for someone who's already free. No, the fact that Jesus uses this language is telling us something unflattering about our spiritual condition. Everything in our culture tells us the opposite, that that we are autonomous, in charge of our destiny, free to follow our hearts and be true to ourselves. But Jesus says that kind of freedom is actually an illusion and can actually lead to the deepest kind of slavery. Remember Mark's primary source for his gospel? His buddy Peter. And the way Peter puts it in 2 Peter 2.19 is this. People are slaves to whatever has mastered them. People are slaves to whatever has mastered them. And something, some idol, some probably good thing that you've chosen to replace God with, that you're organizing your life around rather than him, that thing, whatever it is, Peter says, is mastering you. See, left to ourselves, every single person in this room is not free, but bound and shackled. But Jesus comes and says, Though you could never possibly pay your way out, though your indebtedness to God is infinite and it would take you all of eternity to bear the wrath that you deserve, I've come with all the resources necessary to set you free. I'm here to bear the cost. And what a cost, friends, it was. Just look at the price that was paid. 
Verse 45, he liberated us at the cost of his life, to give his life as a ransom for many. And what a life it must have been. What a life it had to have been because no ordinary life would do. Your life wouldn't do. My life wouldn't do. Line up all the best human beings, all the religious figures down through the ages. No life would be good enough. As the psalmist a thousand years earlier in Psalm 49 had cried out, no one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough so that they should live on forever and not see decay. But here, at last, comes a payment that is sufficient because the currency offered to a holy God is the blood of his beloved son, and that's of infinite value. The New Testament scholar Leon Morris sums it up well. Quote, you were hopelessly, irrevocably lost, and then, incredibly, unbelievably, a ransom was found. It meant a heavy price, the price of the death of the wonderful Son of God. But that price was paid and you have been redeemed. Never take your redemption for granted. Never count it a common, ordinary thing. It is the most incredible thing that has ever happened. And friend, that most incredible thing That liberation from what is enslaving you can happen to you today if you just simply turn and put your trust in this Son of Man and suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you simply look to God and say, I believe that Jesus paid the price I could not pay. I I deserve to pay it forever myself because I'm I'm a rebel But instead, in my place condemned, he stood. He lived as my substitute and died as my sacrifice and rose triumphant so that I can not only be forgiven of all my sins, but freed from their bondage. If that is in any way, friend, any way new news to you, then we would love to talk with you more about that after the service. This room is filled with people who would love to help you better understand how you can be liberated from your sin, from your, from your, uh, your, your struggles that are bound up with your sin, from the judgment of God that is due to you because of this sin, and how you can be liberated to live anew under the smile of God. I'll be standing at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about that. And as I said, many others would as well. Well, as we, as we conclude, as we wrap this thing up, we, we shouldn't miss the, the rich irony that's, that's embedded in this passage. All right? I can't just close in prayer now because I, I haven't shown you, hopefully you've already perhaps detected it, the rich irony here. James and John Submit a request to Jesus that they get to be at his right and left in glory. They didn't know what they were asking, and they they certainly didn't know. What they certainly didn't know is that at the time of his greatest glory, 
there would indeed be two men, one at his right, the other at his left. But of course, these would not be apostles on thrones. These would be criminals on two crosses. James and John can't yet see that the scrolls of Daniel and Isaiah, the Son of Man and the suffering servant, have merged in the person of their rabbi, the person directly in front of them on the road, who's kicking up dust even as they speak, as they follow him toward his fate, where he's going to perform the greatest miracle of all turning a Roman cross into a royal throne. He's going to reign from where he hangs. Carl Henry, maybe his name is familiar to some of you, he was one of the most influential evangelicals of the 20th century, a prolific author, the founding editor of Christianity Today. And near the end of his life, a seminary student waltzed up to him and asked, I think it was actually in a kind of Q&A session, said, Dr. Henry, thanks so much for being with us tonight. After all your achievements, how do you stay humble? And after a minute, the old man looked and said, how can anyone be arrogant when they stand beside the cross? Oh, friends, whatever comes your way this week, Whatever you're going to face, the key to it, the key to facing it, the key to peace and calm, the key to fortitude and joy, the key to everything this week is standing beside the cross. And to the degree we do, we will be positioned to see that even when, like James and John, we're not really yet prepared to identify with Jesus we'll see that he has already come to identify with us. He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. He left the riches of heaven, the praise of angels, to descend and pay it all to reclaim you because you were that valuable to him. Oh, I hope you see this is what sets him apart from every other religious guru, religious founder, Their purpose was to live and be an example. His purpose was to die and be a sacrifice. See, every religion tells you essentially the same thing, including Christianity on this point. Every religion says you should be humble before God. You should serve God. But only one says that first and foremost, God became humble for you to serve you to die for you. And when that beauty and love, the beauty of the ransom and the love that paid it, when that captures your heart, everything starts to change. Everything. You can start to laugh and relax because you know you're not in control anyway, but a good God is. You can do what's right even if no one's watching because you know that your master is. You can handle criticism. You can hear criticism and not be utterly crushed because you have the smile of the living God. In other words, you can finally be freed from those shackles, from those chains of self-regard, freed to serve others. 
Oh, don't miss the great logic of this passage. We're 418 verses deep into the gospel according to Mark, and Mark 10.45 is the most important verse yet. And perhaps the most important word in the verse is the very first word, for. For. It means because. It's pointing back to what came beforehand. The daunting, upside-down kingdom logic of verse 44. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. I mean, if that's my message for you today, hey guys, go serve everyone. Forget about yourself. Good luck. I'll see you next week. We're all doomed. But the, that daunting, those daunting marching orders of verse 44, whoever wants to be first must be slave of all, is only possible because verse 45 is true. As one person put it, the reason why a servant is the most preeminent position in the kingdom of God, think about this, the reason why a servant is the most preeminent position in God's kingdom is because of the function of a servant is to give, and giving is the essence of God. Friends, we will only stop grasping for glory when we see afresh that Jesus laid aside his own for us. You want to be truly great this week? The greatest in the kingdom, he says, is the one who comes serving all. And that can only be true of us because first and foremost, it was true of him. Let's pray. Father, we fall so far short of this passage and left to ourselves, we will remain bound and enslaved to selfish interests. We will not be free to forget about ourselves and to serve others, especially when no one's looking, when no one will notice. Lord, we pray that you would melt our hearts with a fresh vision of this beauty and this love, and we pray that we would be different as a result this week. We pray this in the beautiful name of your son, Jesus. Amen.